even those people who seem to enjoy making themselves miserable are doing so because they think that they will be happier that way. The man who cuts his throat or hangs himself wants to be happy. He thinks that he'll be happy being free through death than uh, through remaining alive and facing whatever it is that is causing him so much vexation. Everybody wants to be happy. And uh, the teachings of God's Word are meant to lead us to happiness. I don't draw the distinction between happiness and joy that many people do. I don't think there's any problem with saying that uh, happiness is a, a good thing to desire. I don't think that happiness is always dependent upon temporary circumstances and that joy is founded upon unchanging principles. Uh, I, I don't mind if you make that distinction. I just hate it when people uh, make joy look like something uh, similar to putting up with a root canal, that you are somehow just gritting your teeth and putting up with it and you don't like it. I don't think that's joy. I think that joy has uh, innately in it an emotional exuberance, that you're happy about it, <clears throat> and you, it makes you feel good. And uh, while it is true that no one is joyful all the time, that no one is happy all the time, uh, yet there is the possibility of a far more consistent and higher degree of happiness than most of us have, have experienced. And uh, I think that the teaching of the Word of God is <clears throat> that as we increasingly believe in the truth of God's Word and rest in the truths of God's Word, the better we are able to uh, see things from the perspective of God, who is uh, indescribably, infinitely joyful. And even in the midst of sorrow, there can be coexistent with that a joy. Jesus is a great example of that. While he was in the garden, he was so uh, filled with anguish that his sweat became like great drops of blood. And yet the book of Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame. And now he's, he is set down at the right hand of God the Father. And so sometimes there will be uh, uh, existing alongside in our hearts a, a sad that is so sad thou canst not be sadder and a joy unspeakable that is full of glory. I think that, uh, as I said, uh, access to happiness is related to our believing the truth of God and allowing that truth of God to influence the way that we think about all things. I don't worry if, if the music at Bullet Lick is going to be excellent. I don't worry about that. You know why? I have confidence in Jim Bob. Uh, my confidence in him helps me to realize he's not going to pick out some kind of wacky song that I'm going to have to get up and correct the doctrine of. I have confidence in him. And that allows me to leave it in his hands. And uh, that's, that's the principle that I'm teaching you now. 
that if we learn that God is sovereign and in control of all things, and if we happily submit to the superiority of Christ in all things, then we have access to happiness that we will not otherwise have access to. In the text of Scripture that is before us now, there is the potential for an anxious conflict to occur. But it is immediately quelled because John the Baptist submits to the sovereignty of God and he submits to the superiority of Jesus Christ. Let's read this text and then we'll go back and see the the potential conflict and the way that John submits in both of these areas and the way that he sets us an example that we also should submit to the sovereignty of God and to the superiority of Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Let me just make a couple of... uh, side comments about this. What I'm getting ready to say is not the main point of the passage. For one thing, I think that there are about seven months of Jesus' ministry that are summed up in verse 22, probably from about May to December. And uh, we don't know anything. Uh, Nobody records the teaching that was going on there. Uh, But I uh, am, I'm confident that the Lord used the time very well in investing in the disciples that he had. A second uh, side note from this verse of Scripture is that it takes lots of water to baptize. So John was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. Uh, so if, if all you're doing is sprinkling, if all you're doing is pouring a little bit of water, you don't have to have much. And so uh, this is one of those biblical texts that I think supports uh, the teaching that baptism is what the word literally means. It is a submersion. It is a dunking that takes place. And, uh, and then one other side note here. I think that John is writing his gospel as a supplement to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's including things that were not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And almost everything that we have in John we do not have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So at this point, I think John recognizes that those who read Matthew, Mark, and Luke would expect that John has been put into prison by this point. And so John is explaining he's not been put into prison yet. And so during this uh, time that only John records, there is this uh, conversation that takes place that lays down the possibility of conflict. Let's see what it is. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. It's clear that uh, John's disciples are concerned about this. They're concerned for the reputation of their teacher, John the Baptist, And uh, there's almost a hint of rebuke. That man you testified about on the other side of the Jordan, 
you gave him too much you gave him too much credibility you have you have given away something that you ought to have retained and now your influence is waning he is also baptizing now we'll learn later on that it was not Jesus himself who was baptizing but that it was his disciples who were baptizing but nevertheless uh, in the minds of John's disciples there is a there is a competing movement going on and John needs to be concerned about it. John needs to up his game or John needs to retract some of the laudatory comments that he's made about Jesus. Something needs to happen, John's disciples imply, because this is not good. Everybody's going to him. But John responds in a way that uh, will quell almost any potential conflict. Now, this is not going to be a sermon about how to win friends and influence people. It's not a sermon about how to get out of fusses. But there is that also that what John does here in submitting to the sovereignty of God and submitting to the superiority of Christ will take care of a whole lot of fusses. But in this specific case, let's see how John submits to the sovereignty of God. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And I'm subsuming all of this under the heading, John cheerfully submits to the sovereignty of God. And the way John starts revealing that he has done this is by saying, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And so as he applies this to Jesus Christ, he says, if he is gaining and receiving uh, more disciples than I am, then that is part of God's plan. And if I apply it to myself, John says, then God has given me the popularity that I have had in recent days. But now if God is calling it back, then I gladly give it to him. And what John here says about the specific ministry of Jesus and about his own specific ministry is one of the pathways to happiness for us. And that is when God has unquestionably revealed his will It may be something that you would not have chosen for yourself. But when it is inevitably set in your way and you cannot maintain integrity unless you go through this, then comfort yourself by saying, God will help me. Comfort yourself by saying, this is God's will. A man cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. So, Uh, The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. He said, I've learned the secret. I've learned the secret of being content in in any and every situation. And that is that the source of my happiness cannot depend on the situation. The source of my happiness has to come from this inexhaustible stream of being in right relationship with God, a God who is able to keep hardship away from me if he wants, a God who is able to bless me with prosperity if he wants, 
But whatever God sends, I'm going to cheerfully submit to him and his sovereignty. A man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. And so John sets us an example. And John comes out of this, John comes out of this potential fracas happy and content to submit to the will of God. But let's see what John says next as he submits to the sovereignty of God. You yourselves can bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So John is able to say, it has been my goal all along to bear witness to Jesus. And so now that uh, the things that I hoped would happen are happening, I'm not disappointed with that. John has embraced the position that God gave him in his kingdom. And that's another key to being happy, is to happily embrace the responsibility that the Lord has given to you and not constantly be saying, well, I wish that I had, I wish that I had somebody else's gifts. I wish that I had someone else's ministry. I think of uh, one of my favorite sonnets by William Shakespeare where he catches himself being envious of uh, somebody else. He says, when in, distress with, when in disgrace with fortune and in men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state. So he's feeling sorry for himself. And trouble, he- trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries and look upon myself and curse my fate. Like, what is going on? Why is my life so lame? Why is my life so bad? And then he goes on, uh, wishing myself like to one more, more blessed, wish- featured like him, with him with friends possessed. I'm just discontent with everything. And then he concludes his sonnet with saying, Yet in these thoughts myself almost despising, haply I think on thee. And then my soul, like to lark at break of day, arising sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings that then I scorn to change my state with kings. So he's talking about his friend, Shakespeare in the sonnet is talking about his friend. He says, when, when things are so terrible and so bad, I just I almost could wish that I were somebody else. And then in the midst of all of these thoughts, I think of you. And then that changes the tide. That changes the day. Then my soul is like a, a lark flying up to heaven, singing hymns at heaven's gate. Because I remember that we're friends. And thy sweet love such wealth brings that then I, would, I wouldn't change places with a king. That's the idea here. Is that there is something that I want that is so much more important than having a bunch of disciples. And this something that I want is something that I'm getting. It's something that is happening. I want Jesus to get the bride, and that is happening. John then thinks of himself similar to the moon in relation to the sun. When there's a full moon, so west and east, so when there is a full moon and the sun is just above the horizon in the west, The full moon is just on the horizon in the east. Well, the next night, when the sun is a little higher 
when the sun is below the horizon, that's when the full moon rises. It's a little past full then. Without going into too much detail, it comes to the point where the sun and the moon are in the sky at the same time. And, uh, but when the sun and the moon are in the sky at the same time, you usually don't notice the moon. Sometimes you do, but usually you don't even notice the moon. Why? Because it has been paled by the brilliance of the sunshine. And John sees himself in that way. I don't need to be distressed that I'm being eclipsed, that I'm being uh, increasingly less popular and increasingly less obvious because Jesus has come on the scene and he must become greater and I must become less. Well, before he gets to that statement, he says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. I'm like the best man of the, of the bridegroom. I want to make sure that the, the, uh, the rings are there. I want to make sure that the, the bridegroom is there on time. I want to make sure that everything is in order. And all of that is taking place. And then when I hear the bridegroom's voice, I'm happy about that. And so John shows that he is content with the place that has been assigned to him in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he submits to the sovereignty of God. And then he makes this, this wonderful statement in verse 20. He must increase, but I must decrease. And what a, what a joy-filled perspective that is on life, our place in life, and our relationship to Jesus Christ. It should be our goal that more and more, as we make progress in the Christian life, we become less obvious to others and Christ becomes more obvious. And that even we become less important to ourselves as Christ becomes more important to us. So one of the lessons that we find from this is that John submits to the sovereignty of God And we ought also to submit to the sovereignty of God, knowing that a person can receive not even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And that if we are permitted to be in the process of glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ, then we should be happy. Even if it means that we decrease. We decrease so that he might increase. And then uh, in the second part of this text... Uh, John sets us an example of submitting to the superiority of Christ. Look at what he says here in verses 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. At the end of verse 30 in the ESV, there's a little footnote. It says, some interpreters hold that the quotation continues through verse 36. That is my perspective. So there's a a close quote at the end of verse 30 in the ESV, but I still take it 
that this is John the Baptist who is speaking. If you disagree with that, then it doesn't make any difference whatsoever as to what is being said here. But uh, I think it's John the Baptist who is speaking, and he is demonstrating that he is submitting his little light to the blazing sun of Jesus Christ because Jesus is superior. And Jesus is superior, first of all, because of his origins. It says in verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. In contrast to that, John knows himself to be a mere human. But Jesus Christ, he comes from above, and therefore he is above all. In contrast to Jesus, John says, I have been speaking only the things that I have gleaned from what the Lord has taught me here on earth. Jesus, on the other hand, speaks what he has seen and heard. Verse 32 says, So Jesus had earlier said this to Nicodemus, No one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And if I've spoken to you of earthly things, how will you believe if I speak to you? And you do not believe, how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Jesus communicates with us the realities of things that he has seen and heard in heaven. This is one of the bedrocks of my faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus is an honest man. I believe that what the Bible records about Jesus is true and that I can rely on what Jesus said and stake my life upon it. He's not, he's not telling lies. He has information that no one else has access to. No one else has come from heaven to tell the truths that he sees in heaven except Jesus Christ. And so I accept the teachings of Jesus Christ as unique among all the the religious teachers of the world because no one else has come from heaven but Jesus Christ. And uh, so everybody else may have wisdom, but they speak earthly and from the earth. But Jesus and those that he has inspired with the spirit of Jesus speak the truth that we can rely on. And so we submit to the superiority of Jesus Christ because he comes from above. We submit to the teaching of Jesus Christ Because he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And then also, when we receive the teaching and the person of Jesus Christ, we are aligning ourselves with God's way of thinking and God's way of acting. That is what faith is. Faith is a... Faith is a way of thinking along with God. Faith, is, faith means that we are going to value the things that God values. Sometimes we have a perspective on faith that faith is sort of like money. And if we've got a faith bill, that we can trade it for salvation. But... Well, let me continue with that illustration. So let's say that you're hungry and you want to buy a hamburger. And so you stop by a, a hamburger place and uh, you make your order. And uh, at, at the cashier, you give them a $10 bill. And that $10 bill has no organic connection to the hamburger. You could use that same $10 bill and you could... Uh, You could buy something at the dollar store. You could use that same $10 bill, and uh, you you might buy a milkshake at a different place. There's no organic connection between 
the thing that you are exchanging for what you get. But that's not how it is with faith. Faith is like eating the hamburger. It is, it is the thing by which your hunger is satisfied. So faith is, is receiving the truth of God, and in receiving the truth of God as it is revealed through Jesus Christ, you are a possessor of eternal life. It's not like you hand over the bill of faith and then God gives you eternal life. Faith is participation in the, in, in the thing that you're getting. It's eating the hamburger. It's, it is experiencing eternal life. With that in mind, let's see what, what <clears throat> we read here in verses 33 and following. Verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony Of course, that's hyperbole. There are some people who were receiving his testimony. But generally speaking, by and large, people rejecting the teaching of Jesus. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. That is, I believe that Jesus is telling the truth. And in doing that, you're also saying, I believe that God is telling the truth. And so in receiving Jesus Christ, you are saying God is true. And so what's the obverse of that? The obverse of that is if you do not receive Jesus Christ, then you're saying, I don't believe God. I don't think Jesus is trustworthy. Therefore, I don't think God is trustworthy. 4, verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. So Jesus did not come just uh, trying to figure out things and then revealing to his followers the stuff that he had figured out. The way that a philosopher like Plato or Epictetus might have done. They, they didn't lay claim to uh, coming from heaven. They didn't lay claim to divine inspiration in the way that Jesus does. But they figured a lot of things out. There's a, a lot of wisdom to be, to be gleaned from some of these guys who figured things out. That's not the way it was with Jesus, though. He is not giving to us just the stuff that he figured out as a, as a wise philosopher. Instead, he is communicating to us the things that he has seen, the things that he has heard in heaven, the things that God has told him to speak. And so several times through the ministry of Jesus, you'll find him saying things like this. The words that you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. I'm speaking what God has told me to say. I've not come into the world to to say my own opinions. I'm speaking what God has told me to say. And so, since Jesus is right about that, when you receive the words of Jesus, then you're receiving the truth of God. And when you reject the words and the teaching and the ministry of Jesus, then you're rejecting the truth of God. For he who has come from God speaks the words of God. Is there any possibility that Jesus was occasionally mistaken? Was there, were there times when Jesus had to say, well, I'm not exactly sure about this, but here's my opinion. No, we never find him saying anything like that. One reason is given right here at the end of verse, uh, at the end of verse 34, because God had given Jesus the spirit without measure. He knew what God was saying. 
on Wednesday night, I always ask the interns, do you have any questions about anything? And this past Wednesday night, uh, someone asked a question about being filled with the Spirit. So, so for example, the, the church was filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then a few days later, Peter and John are going into the temple. There's a man there who's begging at the beautiful gate. And he asks them for something. And then the Bible says, And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee, and so on. But what about that? I thought he was already filled with the Spirit. Uh, Well, apparently, once you have been filled with the Spirit, there's capacity for you to experience bursts of being filled with the Spirit after that. Or to be increasingly increasingly under the control of the Spirit. And so sometimes uh, the influence of the Spirit comes and goes in waves. It doesn't mean that you are a Christian and then not a Christian, but it means that sometimes you are more filled with the Spirit than you are at other times. You can tell the difference in my preaching. There are some times when the preaching goes forth and it's just like, wow, that is... God's Word. And there are other times that you think, well, I think Brother Jim's been kind of tired this week. And uh, it's not really just coming with fire like it does sometimes. And uh, one of the explanations of that is that the wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And uh, sometimes the presence of the Lord is very, very powerful in His Spirit. And I think that we should take advantage of those times. And Uh, Call upon the Lord while he may be found and seek him while he is near. And don't don't put off those times and say, I'll take care of these things later on. Today, if if this is one of those days when the Spirit is working in your heart and you're thinking, this makes more sense to me than it ever has before. Take advantage of that. Take advantage of the movement of the Spirit that is going on right now. So... Let me say just a word further about that before I get to the point that Jesus never had those waves coming and going. So he had the Spirit without measure. But being filled with the Holy Spirit is not a matter of your getting more of the Spirit. It's a matter of the Spirit getting more of you. God, the Holy Spirit, like the other two persons of the Trinity, is omnipresent and indivisible. He is everywhere present as if he were nowhere else, and he cannot be divided into parts. He cannot be divided into quantities. And so the omnipresent spirit is as present anywhere as he is present everywhere. I said that backwards. He is as present everywhere as he is present anywhere. So God's presence is not literally concentrated in heaven. And when you become a believer, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that God's Spirit suddenly reaches a concentration in you. That would mean that God was divisible. He could be concentrated in some places. So what does happen is that when you are converted, you become a willing participant in what the Spirit is saying. 
You become filled with the Spirit because you, for the first time in your life, are cooperating with the Spirit. And that is something that increases, it ought to increase, through our lives. We wish that it were more, well, we wish that it were an absolute filled with the Spirit, but it's more of a ups and downs as we sometimes are filled with doubt. Sometimes we neglect to remind ourselves of God's truth and the thinking of the world comes in and influences us. And then we turn and we search God's word. We hear a sermon. We sing a song. And we are reminded again of the truth of God's word. And we make progress again. That's how it is with everyone. But not Jesus. Jesus had the spirit without measure. There were not these these bursts. There were not these waves of the Spirit. Jesus had the Spirit without measure. And so through what from our perspective may have been good days and bad days, Jesus was not fluctuating in his cooperation with God and his speaking the, the, the words of God. So he has the Spirit without measure. And so John and we should submit to the superiority of Jesus Not only has God given the Spirit without measure to Jesus, but look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. I don't think that John is making an observation about the power of Jesus of Nazareth. I think that John is making an observation about the God-man, two natures in one person. That God the Father had imbued Jesus Christ with all Truth and with all authority and with all worthiness to be worshipped and worthy to be submitted to. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. God, God has always been sovereign and God has always ruled the world. But with the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, God the sovereign God God the Sovereign Father has relegated the rulership of the world into the hands of Jesus Christ. So that now Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. On the basis of that, then obey me. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. All of that commission is based on the assertion, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All things have been given into his hand. Now, if that is the case, then verse 36 should make sense to us like it has never made sense before. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Not whoever believes in the Son will be granted eternal life one day. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There then is that organic relationship between faith and life. Faith is believing what God has said with the intention of submitting your life to what, you, what he has taught you. Uh, and when you believe in Jesus Christ, then you receive him as he is offered to you in the gospel. 
And in that moment, when you turn from the darkness of doubt and unbelief to the light of faith and confidence in Jesus, you immediately become a participant in eternal life. And there's no other way that it's going to happen because God has given all things into the hand of the Son. And no one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, what about those people who, who don't believe that? What about those people who have not yet received the Son? We'll look at the conclusion of verse 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. By the way, notice, notice the way that belief and obedience are paralleled in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not, we would expect believe there. But no, it's obey. It's because faith in Jesus Christ is obedience. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that he has been granted grace and apostleship to call people from all nations to the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. The New International Version botches that up when they make, a tra- they make a, an interpretation rather than a translation. They say, God has granted me grace and apostleship to call people to the obedience that comes from faith. As if the obedience is something that comes after faith. But the Greek, as it's in the ESV and other translations, is better when it says, I'm calling people to the obedience of faith. And then later in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith for faith. That's what it says in the ESV. The NIV says that is from faith from first to last. The Greek just says, from faith to faith. The point is one that I've been making in this sermon. That faith is a participation in eternal life. It's not like you have faith and then you move on to something else. No, what you move further into is a deeper faith. A faith that understands more of God's truth. A faith that leads you to rely more heartily upon God's truth. So that salvation is from faith to faith until faith is lost in sight. And so a person who does not obey the Son obviously does not have faith. And that person will not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Now that's a rather chilling statement. Because what it means is that a person who does not have faith Faith in Jesus Christ is even now under the wrath of God. You can come from under the wrath of God by embracing His Son. Then you are sheltered by Jesus like an umbrella shelters you from a rainstorm. But as long as you stay outside the umbrella of Jesus Christ, you are going to be pelted with God's wrath. And you will remain under the wrath of God. You don't need to do anything to be under the wrath of God. You're already condemned 
if you do not believe in the name of God's only Son. Look back at verse 18 of chapter 3, the words of Jesus, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You have, if you don't believe in Jesus, you have effectively said, God, you're a liar. I don't believe anything that you have said through Jesus Christ. You have said, I don't, I don't think that what you uh, allegedly accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ was necessary for me. I reject Jesus Christ, or I'm going to accept him later when I have finished enjoying this thing that I cannot do once I become a follower of Jesus Christ. So just be patient, and, uh, and I'll get to you later. If that is your attitude, you are right now under condemnation. You are right now under the wrath of God. But if you will receive Jesus, you say, well, my faith is so small. It may be small. But if that little mustard seed of faith is cast in Jesus Christ, if you can today say no more than, Lord, save me. I, I, will re- I, I will cooperate with you. I, I will do what you tell me to do. I will believe what you tell me to believe. Just save me. That's a really small bit of faith. It's kind of like that woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years and she thought, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. And she did. And she was healed. And Jesus said to her, Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. You believed. You trusted. You had confidence in the message that you had heard about me, the message that you heard from me. And when you came just so meekly and quietly and reached out your hand and touched the hem of my garment, that was enough. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. And so your faith may be very small, It's good for you to say, Lord, grant me more faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. But with that little bit of faith that you have, turn towards Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, help me to believe in you. I do believe. Help me to believe in you. Take me from under God's condemnation and give me eternal life. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn.